take pornography. So there's a, there's a ton of research that, um, again, if you just want to look at it from the science standpoint, it is, uh, there are, there are people who believe, well, it kind of, even if you're married, like it, it improves my relationships. Well, it, it actually doesn't because what, what happens is again, because that dopamine cycle is, is, uh, invoked by, and pornography is really, really good at, at optimizing that. The problem is then a real live flesh and blood human being doesn't do it for you anymore. You need a thousand fake human beings mm. to, to make things work. And so, um, yeah, there's actually this porn-induced erectile dysfunction there. Welcome to Lucas Crobot Show. I'm Lucas Crobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, relentlessly pursue truth, and own the future. Now, I have been talking with my community, with our community on Instagram, with multiple people about how they've been taking a month off of their cell phone. They have just taken a month off of Instagram, month off of Twitter. And this is something that's being talked about more and more, how screens are controlling and ruling our life. I, I experience it often too. I, you know, you have that moment of boredom. You have that uncomfortable moment of like, what am I supposed to do right now? And what do we reach for? Our phone. Uh, you know, nomo, nomophobia, the fear of being without your phone is plaguing our generation. I mean, you've probably experienced it. You get in the car, you are about to leave your house and you, re- you patch your pockets, you search your purse and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't have my phone. And we stop, we search for it, it takes 30 minutes, it doesn't matter. Gotta have our phone on us, right? Right, well, today we have author Doug Smith, the author of the book, Unintentional, and he wrote this amazing book, which breaks down the psychology that has gone into building cell phones, building these systems that keep us engaged and entertained, especially on social media platforms. And so we're talking with Doug today on how these systems were made, why they entrap us, and how we can get free. Doug, thank you so much for being here on the show today. I'm honored to be here with you, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me. Now, oh, when you you wrote this book, obviously it came out of a time of your life where you began to realize that the cell phone was not necessarily your best friend. I mean, in some ways it is an extension of ourself, quite literally. It has made us smarter. It has made us more connected. It has enabled us. It has brought billions, not billions, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, the connectivity that this phone has has brought so much opportunity has come from it. But you've also noticed and statistics and trends also point to that there are a lot of negative side effects that can come from the phone. And you began as a computer programmer to unpack the, the, the psychology that goes in to these social media platforms and how they keep the, keep us hooked. So can you unpack some of that journey that led you to write this book? And more specifically, how are these apps engineered to keep us trapped? Wow, that's great. That's, uh, that's, that sounds like a great place to start, Lucas. Thank you. Well, so as you mentioned, I am a software developer. I've been a developer all my life. Um, and so I love technology. I've been involved with technology for a long time. And I um, also have four daughters. And so um, they're grown now, they're adult daughters, but uh, watching the effect of technology on them as they grew up started making me scratch my head and ask questions. 
Yeah. And so specifically to the phone, I got my first uh, smartphone in 2010. Uh, it's hard to imagine there was a time before smartphones. The uh, I was a little bit of a late adopter in those days. The iPhone came out in 2007. Yeah, we think they've been here forever, uh, but it's hard to imagine that there that there was ever a world without them because they have so permeated every aspect of society. Uh, but I so yeah, I was excited when I got my first smartphone, but then I started looking at it and realizing I'm really really like this smartphone. Mm. I like it so much that it's the first thing I look at when I wake up and it's the last thing I look at when I go to sleep. And it's the, uh, wait, what's going on? And so I started, um, I had experience on, on the web development side with things like, uh, with the marketing aspects, with the, the ways that websites were at that point mm. engineered to keep you hooked and keep you connected and keep you engaged but I hadn't really gone down the rabbit hole, so to speak, into the, uh, the app world to really understand what was going on. And so when I started kind of feeling this, something's off, something's not right, I started researching it. And it, it led me to a, a long journey of writing this book. So as, so as you began to, I mean, I think we all, we all can admit that we do have that love-hate relationship with our phone. And so as we, you found out that you maybe love your phone a little bit too much that all of a sudden with probably in a very short matter of time, um, Mm -hmm. you were, I mean, you use the word addicted in your book, but you are definitely Mm -hmm. at a place where it has become a very, very close companion where is it addiction or is it just a really useful tool? And you began to dive deeper into the app development world. And what did you find when you started really digging deep? What did you begin to find? Well, I was really surprised, Lucas, at what I found. I was because not only did I find that, yes, it is true addiction. It's very well documented and very intentional. In fact, that's why I called my book unintentional. Because most of us are unintentional with our screen time. We, most of us don't realize all the engineering that goes into making our devices so ad- truly addictive. And I could go into that a little bit more detail. But the, because the industry is incredibly intentional in the way that they design things. And so they hire top behavioral psychologists. They hire neuroscientists. They hire the best and the brightest in all these fields in technology, behavioral psychology, neuroscience, they have engineered um, the ability to run tests that, that um, drive us to the outcomes that they want us to have, which most of those outcomes are ultimately longer engagement with whatever they want us to be using. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that the, um, we, and we can go into this a little bit more detail, but everyone is, because this has become such a thing, the, the neurochemical, the neurotransmitter dopamine has been a, um, a hot topic in many aspects, in many realms and many discussions. And, uh, it's, it's a real thing. Uh, one of the yeah. books that I read that what that really made the a big difference was called irresistible by Adam Alter. And he documents very in bi- much detail line by line, how, um, the neuro, the neurotransmitter dopamine and how that is exploited to, uh, to cause us to feel pleasure when we're using our apps is exactly the same cycle that actually works with drug addiction. So he was able to show that wow. people who are addicted to heroin 
And people who are addicted to, for example, World of Warcraft, those, those brain scans, when they look at those brain scans and neuroscience look at those, they, they have a hard time telling the difference. So that points to something much deeper going on than uh, just a surface level addiction. Now, actually, in our the very first interview that I did now over two years ago, we actually touched on this and how our cell phones have these these dope. It's not that the cell phone has a dopamine pattern baked into it, but it's using our dopamine pathways to get us addicted, and it has the same amount of kind of dopamine rush that eating a donut would have. Now, the donut is, you know, a, a, a modern miracle. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at the, the span of history, it is so calorie dense that I know for me, um, I don't eat donuts often, but when I'm in a place of weakness, if I'm, I don't eat sweets very often either, but if I see a donut, I'm going to at least crave it. I, I'm very good at mm-hmm. self control and actually not eating it but right it has the when we eat a donut it is so calorie rich that our our bodies with over the the thousands of years of of genetic development we say we need this food because it is so calorie rich i need this and it gives us this huge shot of dopamine and that our phones are creating the same biochemical response within our body that brings us back and back and back and back again. And, and you talk about this too in, in how they looked at how casinos organize their slot machines, even organize their floor plans to keep people betting, to keep people going. And it's, and it's, it's not that you win every time. It's that you don't know when you win. And I think that's one reason that, uh, you know, TikTok it can be such a hole for many people, especially in posting, because you never know what post is going to hit and get picked up by the algorithm. Now, Instagram has has really lost that edge because of the, the inundation of media. But I, I can see how engineered into that is those those dopamine hits. But I'd love to hear kind of in more scientific detail really how this process works so that we can be aware of it. Sure. Uh, well, there's two aspects to it. Uh, there is the, the, the brain chemistry. And um, you had, uh, in fact, I learned about your podcast because you had Dr. Michael Egnor. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Michael yes. Egnor. You had him. So yes. if you wanted to get deep in the neuroscientists, we've got to talk to him. But I can tell you that at least from, from my understanding as a, as a computer engineer, as a software engineer, what happens in the dopamine cycle in the brain is that there's a normal amount of pleasure. Like we're made to feel pleasure. And that's a great thing. That's mm. how we're made. <clears throat> but the problem is, is if you feel too much pleasure or it, it, your, our brain automatically kind of backs off and says, whoa, whoa, whoa that's too much. So the, the level, the sensitivity to dopamine goes down. So it, then at that point, it takes more dopamine to feel the same amount of pleasure. Now, if you're on that cycle over and over and over again, if you're triggered by something and then you feel a pleasure and then you take an action and then you commit, that's called a, that's a habit forming loop that they actually build into the products. When that happens too much, then the brain adapts and adapts and adapts. And pretty soon you can't feel normal pleasures anymore. You have to be, uh, you have to be kind of supercharged. You have to be a way more, uh, exciting, dramatic, and, and like you said, casinos and lots of other things do the same, bring the same kind of things. Yeah. Um, donuts, food, cocaine, um, 
you know, other kinds of drugs, same, it's the same exact thing. People just don't think I'm not putting a substance in my body. So how could technology do that? And the reason is, is that it has that biochemical effect Mm. and they do, they've done thousands of tests, thousands and thousands of tests. They can, they can show a brain scan. They can run, they can have you use an app for a while. They can then make some changes, run it again, run it again, run it again, thousands and thousands of times, measure all the details and come out with the exact same exploitation of our, what I call weaknesses in our behavioral psychology to optimize us for use of their apps or whatever they're trying to get us to use. Now, the way you you put this, it sounds so nefarious. It sounds like, um, y- you know, it just sounds like, well, this, they're just so evil in doing this. When, when, I, when I stop to think about it, I can see, okay, you know, for people who are undisciplined, who are unintentional, people who don't have boundaries in their life, it's like, well, yeah, they're going to fall into this trap. They're going to get consumed by it, but they're going to get consumed by something else in their life if they're not consumed by social media specifically or, you know, the vibration on their phone. But in some ways, it, it I I mean, for sure, 100%, some of it is extremely intentional and nefarious, but there's also a side of it where they're trying to optimize the user experience. They're saying, we want our our app to be successful. We want people to have ease in using it. We want people to enjoy using it. So we're going to use behavioral psychology to understand what causes people to use it and engage with our platform so that we can sell this attention to advertisers. So in, in part, I can see how it's nefarious in, in the fact that it, it is addictive and it, it can consume so many hours of people's lives and then they're selling those hours in the same way that TV has done. Um, mm-hmm. But in another way, they've also provided an enormous amount of, of service where we are able to have a near seamless connection with a billion people on the face of the earth. So I, I mean, I, 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 I know the science, I, I look at it and I agree, but there's part of me that's like, well, yes, but so what would you say to that? Yes, but that's great, Lucas, uh, because that is the real world we live in. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's hard to say nefarious when you do kind of think they probably didn't set out necessarily to ruin everybody's lives, to cause everybody to be so addicted that they don't reach their dreams and their goals, to cause, you know, teens to spend their prime learning times and, you know, addicted to their, you know, so they're not sleeping. Um, the, you know, they're doing the equivalent of a full-time job or more on whatever these yeah. addictive platforms are. They probably didn't set out Let's see now, how can we best ruin people's lives? They didn't try. So, so the word nefarious, well, I, I like it. And I think it's, it's more based on the outcome than uh-huh. probably their intention. So, um, the, but the problem is it is the outcome. So you're right. They have, because they've been so successful, take Facebook, for example, there are, you know, they have 2.7 billion users around the world now, um, at least. Uh, that that number goes up and up all the time. They've made, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the third or fourth richest person on the planet. Yeah. Um, That, um, did he provide some value? Absolutely. Did he provide 
Um, you know, so, so we can connect all around, all around the world with people. We can see pictures of our grandkids or whatever. And, and that's a wonderful thing. The problem is that most people don't know that the reason he won so big is because he did intentionally make it addictive, mm-hmm. like in every aspect, in thousands of ways they did that. Yes, it's easier, but it's just like, like your donut analogy. If, if somehow Mark Zuckerberg was able to install a donut machine in every house, and all of us, you know, were, they were the best donuts ever. And we had communities around donuts to the point where we all weighed 400 pounds. And, um, you know, and right, right. Uh, but they were the best donuts we'd ever had. And we're talking about it all around. You know what I mean? It's the same kind of a deal. Maybe he didn't. And maybe and we love these donuts. They're so good. But at the end of the day, they're destroying us. And for a lot of people, the people who are unintentional, mm. it really is costing them their dreams, their purpose, their hopes, so much more than they realize. So, and you mentioned, you talk about this in the book. What, what is the data showing, the, the scientific data and trends uh, studies, how is it destroying us? I mean, we say that, we say that all the time. It's kind of like mm-hmm. one of those things that, oh yeah, yeah, I know it's destroying me as I swipe again and I like again. <laughs> but what is it What is it actually doing to our brain chemistry? What is it actually doing to our relationships? What is it actually doing to our lifestyle, to our youth? Right. Yeah, it's, there's so much, Lucas. There's so much. The, um, one of my favorite people on this subject is doc, Dr. Jean Twenge. She wrote a book called iGen, which um, is focused on youth, and uh, but it does uh, it does point to statistics that can apply to all of us. But the youth are because of the brain chemistry. We our brains are growing all the time from about the from uh, the point of birth up until the point of about age twelve. Our brains are filled with potential, mm. and the potential is represented in neuropathways. And so that's why if you learn to play the piano or you learn to speak another language or you learn to, um, you know, do, do all kinds of things is great if you can do that when you're young, because you've got all this potential from the time you're about 12 until you're about mm, late teens to early twenties, your brain is now optimizing and they're pruning the neural pathways. They call it synaptic pruning. And that's optimizing for the things that you, um, so that you can be really, really good at the few things that you're going to be good at. So again, through your teen years, you want to be in school. You want to be doing hard things. You want to be working really, really uh, hard to get those skills so that when you're of age and you can be, you know, this awesome chemist or this awesome engineer or this awesome even sports player or musician or whatever. What's the problem that's happening is that our neural pathways are being optimized by our screens and especially the youth. Mm. And so they're getting really, really, really good at Fortnite. They're getting really, really, really good at Instagram because they're spending 40, 60, 80 hours a week on it. Because and it's so, so addictive. Correct. So, um, so, the, so then you look at the outcome. So iGen, you look at the, the increase you can actually trace from the point when smartphones passed 50% of the population around 2011. You can see the trends of increased anxiety, increased depression, increased suicidality. Um, it's having a real cost, increased, um, obesity, increased, um, decrease in, in uh, school performance, decrease in real good social relationships, decrease in even identity, like figuring out who am I, all those kinds of things are costing, um, especially the youth, but really all of us at, at some level, 
and uh, it's it's truly tragic. And so that's where the those outcomes um, are. Again, coming back to they didn't probably mean to. In fact, I have quotes in my chapter three of my book where they're where you know the twenty something developers in Silicon Valley didn't set out to do. They set out to just create this really awesome experience. But now they're thirties. They're having kids, and they're looking at. They're asking right. questions. You can read in the in the trades. What have we done? What have we done? What have we? Some some early Facebook investors are talk about. You know, have we have we totally um, scrambled our kids' brains? Mm. You know, what 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 have we done? They really are asking those hard questions, and they should. And and you can't unring that bell in in so many ways, right? Right, Right. that's absolutely true. So what what I hear is that it's in these these obviously formative years, young years. These kids, they're developing those neural pathways. But if their pathways are being developed in such a way that they're not being active, they're not being creative, they're not exploring, they are just consuming, then that can be extremely detrimental. It can really stunt their growth. And then into their teen years, instead of being able to prune those those skills and those disciplines so that when they're in their 30s, they actually can have um, healthy relationships and values in the world. They're just becoming really good at social media and really depressed because they have no purpose outside of themselves. They have nothing outside of their phone to really be able to give themselves to. And you know, in some ways that is, I think, probably an, an exaggeration, but in other ways, kids are spending nine hours a day on screens. And when you're spending nine hours a day on screens, that's really being beginning to shape you. So, mm-hmm. you know, on a, on a personal note, like my, my kids, my kids are still young. They're, you know, oldest is seven down to, you know, seven, mm-hmm. five, almost three and one. Um, oh, fun. But my my two older boys, because both I and my wife, we are we create a lot of content. My wife, she has an online business, so she's always creating content. She's you know getting up early in the morning to jump on business calls. Like she is just on top of it. So they they see us creating that content, and so they even at the age of five, they want to create content. So they mm-hmm. they spend time. Rather than consuming, because we don't allow them to just, you know, they're so young, we don't allow them just to consume on YouTube, but they want to be producers on YouTube and they are, you know, giving talks that are really great. They're making YouTube videos that are really incredible at mm. at such a young age. So I, I think that is part, you know, kind of going back to the original question where the, it seems like it's not necessarily, I mean, it is, it is the phone. But that isn't the problem, right? The the phone itself isn't the problem. It's I am the problem or my parenting is the problem or it is a, a, a lack of intentionality with my life and my time, a lack of discipline, a lack of focus, a lack of boundaries that seems like is more the problem than just saying, well, donuts are the problem. Well, no, it's that I went and I bought donuts and I ate 12 dozen of them. That's the problem, right? Because now my kids, they have this ability from a young age to grow skills through creating something that can actually have a profound um, leverage point for them at a young age to become mouthpieces, to become 
people with uh, amazing orator skills and video creation skills because they put in the work at the young age. So do you do you think that there is a, a, a differentiation there between being a content creator on some of these platforms and just a consumer on these platforms? Absolutely, Lucas. That's that is a huge distinction. Uh, I think you're I think your kids are would obviously be gifted in oratory. You are very gifted, and they um, I can see where they would want to express Thank and you. Be, be gifted at sharing. And so, and, and that is the way that's typically done. I think I think you're right. So there's a huge there isn't a huge difference between creating and consuming, and a totally different place in the brain, a totally different place in the heart. Really, you know, when you think about I'm giving instead of I'm receiving, I'm sharing instead of I'm taking. And so that's a great place, great headspace for them to be. I think the, the challenge is because the platforms are so very good at what they do, there's so much risk. Mm. And so the boundaries as a parent that we would have to place around that just to slip up a little bit into whatever funny trail, it just, it can, it, it's kind of like, um, it, it's these platforms are because they're so open and you can go down and, and it gets really, it can get really dark in a hurry. Right. I mean, there's, there's right. things where right. here's how you commit suicide. Here's how you can do, you know, just here's oh. how you can blow up a building. Yeah. You know, all these terrible things. I, I mean, they don't want our kids totally to nefarious. I mean, like in kids yeah. shows, you know, a character comes on and, and is teaching kids how to do, I mean, just like completely wicked, just right. like evil. It is. There's sick, sick, sick people out there that, that exploit kids and they, you know, they, they type one little typo and you're off into just awful pornography or, you know, one little thing. And we obviously don't want that for our kids. And so it's, it's almost like, okay, our platforms are like downtown New York city or something like that. And that's where you kind of have to go and talk. All right. This is where, but downtown New York city has got pluses and minuses, right? Yeah. So if you can, if you can make a name for yourself and go out and speak on a street corner in downtown New York city, sure. But if you're, but you're not going to leave your kid alone to go speak on downtown New York city street corner somewhere, especially not at night. Yes. Right? Yes. You're not going to do, you're not going to do that because why? Because it's dangerous. And there's lots of people out there that are just, you know, they're going to, they're going to want to predate their predators or want to, you know, take your kids out. So same online, it's the same online. And, and again, it's optimized for that. So, mm. um, and most people can't overcome the temptation. Most people are going to eat the 12 dozen donuts mm. online. And so it's very rare person who can have that self-discipline, especially at a young age, but even as adults. Yeah. Uh, so that, so again, the boundaries you have to put around that and the, the, the structures around making that possible is where, and then, and in the education, right? And I think from a young age, I'd want to be telling my kids, you know what, this is good. You can, you can do a lot of great stuff, but there's a lot of things about this platform. Do you know how they show you this next video? Because they're watching you all the time and they want you to spend time watching videos. They'd be happy if you spent time watching videos 24-7. Absolutely. I even quoted in my book how, how uh, the CEO of Netflix, his, comp his competitor isn't other video platforms. Reed Hastings declared his competitor is sleep, right? So he's optimizing it for us to stay up just a little longer, binge watch just a little longer. Why? Because, so he can make a little more money and we can get a little less sleep. And obviously that costs us a lot. Now, kind of going back to, to my kids, I think, and to your point, um, we did notice that, you know, they, they made a couple YouTube videos and then instantly they were so wrapped up in their metrics. 
so wrapped up of how many views did I get? How many views do I have now? How many? And, you know, you could mm-hmm. see the that dopamine hit, you know. Yep, that's they made totally a, it. A, a, a really awesome video of what's inside a baseball. Did great. It had like a couple hundred views. They're like, what? It had so many, like, and you saw that that dopamine hit and we're like, oh my goodness. So instantly we have to have these discipleship moments of like, okay, like we cannot, our identity does not come from how many likes or how many views or how many comments or if so-and-so saw it, like that, you know, what we create doesn't define us or more importantly, how the market engages with what we create does not define our value. And so I think to your point and kind of against my own point is that it is such a slippery slope, even when it's um, used to grow a skill, um, it can really become a trap. And I, I, I think it's just a more prevalent trap than other areas of our life where we can, we can still get that, whether it's we're playing soccer or we're playing baseball and we want to be the person that's getting that praise and affirmation. It's just, as you talk about in the book, those cycles are much slower. You're, it takes much right. more work before you're getting a, a small moment of affirmation, whereas online, you just hit refresh, 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 keeping on you know, looking for those dopamine hits, and so it's more intense. But when we, when we move away from maybe younger kids and we move to you know teens and even young adults – 20s, 30s, um, how is this affecting us? What are some of the, the patterns that are emerging? Um, do we need to be just as wary? Like w- what's going on in, in that arena? We do need to be just as wary. We, um, uh, because again, most people don't realize the amount, the millions of hours, the billions of dollars that are spent to help us stay attached to our devices. Mm. I often tell people that the biggest, the, the biggest and most powerful corporations in the world are way more intentional about your time than you are. <laughs> and so, you know, wow. nobody woke up one day and said, you know, gosh, I hope when I grow up, I want to spend 40 hours a week giving all my data to the most powerful corporations in the world. And yet we're all doing that. And, and why are we doing that? Because they're designed to bring us into that. And so that's where, um, that's where people in, in those age groups start waking up and going, wait, what, what am I doing? I thought by now I, I would have written my book. I would have, I thought I'd have a better relationship with my kids, but my kids just want to be on their phone all the time. Well, why? Cause I'm on my phone all the time, you know, or, you know, on and on and on. We're losing, we're losing vital parts of who we are to the time we're spending unintentionally on our devices. Mm. We're more anxious. We're more depressed we're never, we never feel like we can get ahead. I talk to people like that all the time when they come and, and when I speak and things are, oh, I just, I can't, I just can never seem like I ever get a breath. And I, and I want to ask, so how much time do you spend on whatever? And the, the heartbreaking, the ones that are really, I think men are more uh, uh, susceptible to the video game side. And so I often have, you know, women, wives come up and say, what do I do about my husband? It's not, it's not my kids that are addicted, but my husband's addicted to this and that video game. And he'll play until four in the morning or whatever. And wow. um, I never see him anymore. I'm, I'm there. There's video game widows. And that's, that is a real, real problem. And again, those video games are optimized to 
take over your time and attention and every, and, and they fulfill. You constantly are talking about finding that purpose. If you're in that video game, that world that is created in that video game is created to give you this kind of false sense of having accomplished something. Mm-hmm. Why? And how do they do that? Behavioral psychology, neuroscience, studies, um, you know, over optimization. And they know, okay, just, just a little longer. Give them, a, give them a quest that feels just a little bit out of reach. And then when they reach it, oh, that feels so good. All that is optimizing us for what? For spending more time on their platforms and not what we're here to do. And so what, and you touched on a little bit before, you, you mentioned um, how, especially with kids, but even older people, it's always, it's, you know, you're just one click away from, you know, falling into pornography addiction. You're, you're one step away from, you know, desensitizing yourself. And, and we've been talking about this um, as a community and just even the community on Instagram. I just see so many people talking about how horrified they are that Netflix is just openly defending um, uh, just child pedophilia and right. it's just with this the show cuties. So, mm-hmm. but it seems like, you know, that is just something that's kind of out on the forefront that's right up there in uh, Netflix, which seems kind of like more like a, a community square area. But it probably in many ways in these gaming worlds, you know, there's already been a, a real desensitization uh through violence and through um, just all the sexualization that happens on those platforms, what does that do to our relationships? What does that do to our psyches? Like, how is that impacting us? Well, that's a great question. That, that the the impact is really, really unfortunately negative. It's um, take pornography. So there's a there's a ton of research that um, again, if you just want to look at it from the science standpoint. It is. Uh, there are there are people who believe. Well, it kind of even if you're married, like it it improves my relationships. Well, it, it actually doesn't, because what what happens is again because that dopamine cycle is is uh, invoked by and pornography is really really good at at optimizing that. The problem is then a real live flesh and blood human being doesn't do it for you anymore. You need a thousand fake human beings mm. to to make things work, and so. Um, yeah, there's actually this porn-induced erectile dysfunction that actually is a thing. There are people that cannot, like it's, it's actually costing in terms of um, maybe the next generation. Maybe there won't be as big of a next generation because of pornography. So even though that's pretty significant, that's a culture killing, you know, that's a, that's a culture killing thing. But yeah, it's causing divorces. It's causing, um, so, the, so the other problem with pornography is it gets increasingly darker. It gets mm. increasingly more violent. It gets increasingly more, uh, degrading. And why is that? So why, are, why does it get increasingly darker? Again, that just points right back to our pleasure cycle. It, it, um, it, it's because the, the thing that used to give you pleasure doesn't work as well anymore. So there's just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And pretty soon you're way down a road you did not intend. And so then you do end up with cuties. But cuties, as you, as you mentioned in Netflix, that didn't just pop out of nowhere. We didn't go from Andy, the Andy Griffith show 
to cuties, right? We incrementally went down roads of a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit right. more. And now we have we to went through these in order to feel like it was exciting. Right. We went through Friends. We went through Seinfeld. We, we went through Two and a yep. Half Men. We we went through, yep. um, uh, you know, Third Rock from the Sun. We went through um, all those sitcoms. And then we went through mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. And right. so, like, the, the only logical place is to go where we have gone, you know, especially when you're taking from just that, that psychological um, standpoint of these dopamine hits, we have to keep on pushing and pushing the envelope in order to, to capture an audience. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And so it's nefarious. (laughs) It truly is nefarious because people are, um, uh, they're drawn into this. They do not realize uh, most, the average person does not set out to become connected and addicted to these things, but then they do. And then they're stuck. And that's why I wrote this book is because I wanted people to be able to break free from all that kind of mm. stuff. It's this, because they just, in the first part of, of being able to get out of that is just realizing it's a thing. Everybody else is doing it. Yeah. Because you're, because they're being exploited. They're being, this is happening to you because the, again, the most powerful corporations in the world became that powerful by exploiting you mm. and doing those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think, I think we've gotten, you know, on the pornography front, I think we've gotten to a place in society um, where a lot of people are even kind of defending it. A lot of people are saying, well, this is sure. an expression of art. Um, people don't even see that it is um, bad. It's like, oh, we need to actually normalize this more. But in the midst of that, um, the American Association of uh, uh, Psychology, they actually say that if you are in pornography or if you're watching pornography, that that constitutes as having an affair in your marital relationship. So yep. – I, I, but I think in most people's minds are like, well, wait, no, that's not – I'm not having an affair. But really – on a psychological level, they're saying, no, this is actually going outside the bounds of your relationship. And it is equivalent of having an affair. And it's the, the equivalent uh, psychological impact on your spouse. And it's not, I think, the other uh, big lie that's out there today that's only men that struggle with pornography when it's actually both genders. And um, mm-hmm. as you write about in your book, um, with the phone, Kids are getting addicted to porn at the age of eight, at the age they're getting introduced and addicted because they're left unsupervised on a phone. And I think the hard part is, is that as a parent, we're giving them a phone because like we need like, okay, I need, I just need them to be quiet for a moment. I need them to have some, their own kind of stuck quiet time so I can get something done in this busy life. And so we can't be supervising them on the phone, but then the alternative is so much, and that is, I think, dark and nefarious. And it's realizing that it truly is. There are platforms and tools that can be leveraged for both good and for evil, depending on who is using it and which pathways people get down, fall down. That's right, Lucas. Yeah, it's so heartbreaking the 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 predation of kids by the pornography industry is uh, it just it tears me up inside and that's another reason why I do what I do is, is to try to help parents understand 
Um, it's there are so many ways the pornography industry is trying to find your kids. It's almost impossible for the people that are working to build filters and et cetera to, to protect them. And uh, it's just, it's looking for them. It's seeking them out. And, uh, and once, because they know the porn industry knows what the drug, what drug dealers know, mm. I'll give you a free hit. I'm going to have a customer for a really long time. And it warps their view of sexuality. It warps their view of, you know, that everything now becomes sexualized. Then they just become another predator. It makes predators out of them. The, the, the sexual violence that's happening kid on kid now is just shocking in grade school, you know, because they saw it on some YouTube clip and um, went and tried it out at first grade, you know, or second grade. It's just like, oh, really? This is... And so, right, it, we have normalized giving kids a phone, um, but it's, it's not serving them well. It's, it's really, really hurting them. And um, we're really, uh, one of the things I, I talk about a lot about is that I think we're in the phase of the smartphone where we were with smoking in like the 1930s, mm, yeah. <clears throat> 1920s, 1930s. We're kind of in that early phase. Yeah. We're like, ah, it's not that bad. Yeah, I mean, it, I feel better when I smoke and and th- there were advertisements back in the day where you can find these vintage Marlboro ads with a baby with, you know, on the picture, certainly with doctors with their white coats saying doctors so-and-so recommends this cigarette because whatever. It's Big Tobacco was doing the same things, optimizing their products to make them addictive that Big Tech is doing with their products today. Yes. And Big, big Tobacco, Joe Camel, was like at the time of the big of that, Joe Camel was like the most recognizable cartoon character in a certain class of children at those days. Why? Because their advertising worked. They were aspiring. You mentioned, you mentioned how the kids you're seeing, you know, seeing parents do this and that they were aspiring to do this. Mm. Right. So we're creating aspirational categories for our kids that are, and yeah, everybody else is doing it, but what are we going to think in 20 years? Um, One of my favorite authors, Cal Newport, who wrote this great book called deep work and digital minimalism. He predicted that um, like in five years, we'll look at a teen with a smartphone like today we'd look at a teen with uh, a cigarette. Wow. And Because today, you know, so we're not there yet. I think, I think he was probably a little um, optimistic. I think we're, we're probably, it's going to be a while before you really go, wait a minute, that, that we, should not, we should not be giving them the phone because of all these other reasons. Uh, because it's intentionally designed to make them addictive and not become all they were made to be. Well, so I, so one point that you said there, and I think it's important to highlight, is that it's not a new thing. It's like they did it with cigarettes. They've done it with, you know, they've done it with everything before, right? Of, yep. of yep. creating yep. these traps for a, whether it's a sales cycle, whether whatever it is, um, it's not necessarily a brand new thing of, of, of the propaganda as you talk about in your book and, and the marketing and targeting young kids. You know, the drug industry has done it. Tobacco has done it. Phones have done it. Um, and, and so with that, I, in, in some ways, I feel like a lot of people think, well, if we can stop it, if we can stop this, then the problems go away. You know, but, but the problems still exist in society outside of the phone, right? If we escape from, if we throw our cell phone in the trash, I mean, there's still sexual predators, 
right? If mm-hmm. we, we if we throw our cell phone in the trash, there's still other a, a propaganda that is going after us to get us. Um, and so one thing that I, I'm wary about is like, okay, I don't want to just withdraw and try to hide. And I think at one point in your book, you, you talk about how some people shouldn't have a cell phone. And I, I think I can agree with that to a degree um, because it, it it is still possible to live in this age without having a smartphone. I think it is possible, um, but I think it, it puts a severe handicap on you. But if you need a severe handicap because you're not able to discipline yourself and without that severe handicap, you actually just become a cripple um, in just consumed with media and anxiety and not able to be productive, then I can see why you might suggest saying, okay, well, maybe you should just throw your phone in the trash. So I agree. If you're just actually truly addicted, yes, cut that off, cut that cancer off, like get free from it. Don't just let the temptation sitting around. Um, but I don't think that's all of us. That's not the the majority of us. The majority probably have a, a, a minor addiction and or poor habits that have been formed around how and when we use our phone. What would, what would you say to response to that? That's great. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not for, there's, there's no one size fits all solution to all this because you're right. We've been, there've been snake oil salesmen. They're probably, you know, in prehistoric days, I'm sure there were things that were addicted that people sold and exploited other people. It's just never been so successful. It's never been so pervasive as, as with technology. So yes, you're right. Uh, the, um, the, the context of where I'm talking about, you know, some people shouldn't have a phone really does evolve around the, the notion of the, the darker, the much darker things, the pornography, the gambling, the, 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 you know, obsessive shopping, the, and the true addiction to video games and, and uh, social media and so on. So much of the context of what you do with technology has to be under the umbrella of what are you here to do in general? What are you here for? And how does technology, how does anything else in your life support what your purpose is, what you're yes. here to do? So if you're, if, like you said, if you are addicted to the point where you don't even think of anything else, your favorite thing to do in the whole wide world is to spend time on your phone and you, can, you have no other life, you're missing what you're here to do. And so that would be a time to maybe just take a break, maybe get rid of it, um, maybe never have it back. Some people will be so triggered by the presence of a screen that they can't think of anything else but porn. So they'll never be what they, you know, so it's just goodbye phone. You don't need it. And you can get on without it. You actually can do really, really, really well without it. You can, um, especially if that takes you down that road. But yeah, most of us know, most of us just need to be way, way more focused on our purpose and really, really, really intentional about the boundaries we put around our technology. That's a great moment to segue. We're going to continue on into our two with Doug Smith talking about how we can live intentionalized. We've been focusing this first half of the episode on our unintentionality and how when we're unintentional, we're not boundaried and we're just letting the winds of change blow us any which way into any which ditch and we just stay stuck there as victims we are going to have miserable, anxious, 
horrible lives. But that is not your destiny. That is not your purpose. That is not why you were placed here on the earth. So come back, roll over to the second hour of this episode where we begin to talk about some strategies that you can implement today to get free from unintentionality and step in into intentionality through things like deep work and knowing your purpose and the secret, the secret to where purpose is actually found. We'll see you right over there on the next episode.